then met another guy who was a creative director who had been a painter and sculptor in his previous life. And at the time he was running another animation studio. So we all got together and started talking about, well, I have this company, it's kind of coming back to life. We all love building things for, for physical environments. We like doing things kind of going beyond what is what is expected within those spaces. So maybe we just take what's left of my old company and let's turn it into something new. And that's literally what, what Leviathan was. My old Rolodex, I'll use air quotes for, for people who might still remember that term. But my, my list of contacts, the, the money in the bank, and started over with, with those assets. And that was Leviathan. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory. You know those amazing set displays at concerts that have crazy visuals projected all over them? Or those three-story digital display walls with all sorts of content you might see in the lobby of a big, fancy New York City media skyscraper? Well, today, we're talking to the guy who makes those. And before we get into this episode, I want to welcome you to the summer edition of Baby Got Backstory. The pace is a little more laid back and my feet are perpetually sandy. My tan is starting to come in, and every episode is recorded in board shorts. And if that doesn't get you excited to leave a five-star review and rating over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, nothing will. Hey, I know it's summer. I know you're probably about six white claws in while you're listening to this. You're going all post-pandemic crazy, but ratings really do matter. Apple and Spotify use these ratings as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on their charts, even during the summer, especially during the summer. I guarantee you a better summer than Kid Rock if you leave a review. Oh, and we like the likes and the follows and ratings too. So thank you for all that. Thank you for your reviews. I do appreciate it. Today's guest, is Chad Hudson, CEO and co-founder of the award-winning Chicago-based experiential creative firm, Leviathan. At Leviathan, Chad facilitates creative strategy and all key business developments for the specialized creative agency, including managing the company's overall operations. His efforts have led to client relationships with Nike, Disney, Amazon, T-Mobile, Kohler, Universal, McDonald's, and Airbus, among others. Ever hear of any of those companies? I'm thinking you have. Chad previously co-founded the digital creative agency Eat Drink in 2002, which merged with Leviathan in 2012. And over the years, that firm produced breakthrough broadcast and interactive work for an amazing roster of brands and agencies. His prior experience includes highly productive stints with the experiential marketing firm MC2 as an entertainment and technology project manager and with leading Hollywood post-production sound company, Sound Deluxe, as operations manager. A native of southeastern United States, Chad earned his Bachelor's of Recording Industry Management at MTSU, and a past presenter at multiple South by Southwest conferences. Chad has also spoken at many other high-profile events 
including Infocom, Tide, the American Marketing Association's High Five Conference, VCU Brand Center's Friday Forum Series, and numerous society for experiential graphic design events. And if that didn't impress you enough, this is his story. I am here with Chad Hudson, the CEO of Leviathan. And Chad, thank you so much for coming on the Baby Got Backstory podcast. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about what is Leviathan? Cool name. I know it's a, you know, kind of historic, weird sea creature, but uh, in your context, what is Leviathan? Oh, thanks for having me on, Martin. Appreciate it. So Leviathan is a specialized design firm. We like to transform environments into bespoke experiences using a lot of digital wizardry in the way of content interaction to make people's jaws drop. So hopefully that's an apt description of what we do. Yeah, and why don't we just get right to, to my burning question. Where's the name Leviathan come from? Ooh, that was a hotly debated topic. We went round and round um, for a few different reasons. So I'd say out of the hundred or so names that we had uh, come up with, Leviathan kept coming, I guess, coming full circle uh, for us, in part because we wanted to be, uh, being in Chicago, uh, architecture is such an important part of, of the city, very, very classic city in regards to architecture as well. So that led to, okay, what's a classic name? And Leviathan, uh, as you may have seen, goes back uh, from the days of the of the uh, when the Bible was written, or at least how it was translated, to um, an essay by Tom, by Thomas Hobbes about the Commonwealth, and also if you look at the dictionary, there's something uh, there's a de- definition something enormous, and that to us just kind of spoke volumes as far as we want to be uh, probably somewhat intimidating to our competitors, but we also want to um, create the feel of something big and something something unique. So um, all those different factors. They combined contributed to why we call Leviathan, Leviathan. Awesome. And so as the CEO of a creative firm, like a creative services firm like Leviathan, I mean, is this what you thought you'd always be doing? Like, you know, eight-year-old Chad, were you running around thinking you were going to be, you know, running a creative services firm, thinking big and doing big things? No, I'm kind of a, kind of a shy guy in some ways. So I never really thought I would be the CEO of anything. But as far as interests go, when I was a kid, I, I'm dating myself now, but I had what was known as the Radio Shack color computer. So I guess if you had a personal computer as a kid, you probably either had an Apple 2E or something like that, uh, or a Radio Shack color computer. So at an early age, I loved to um, play around with computers. I loved, um, we lived in the woods, so I would always be outside and wanting to experience what nature had to offer. So I suppose that part doesn't surprise me. Uh, loved going to theme parks, loved understanding how, how the sausage is made and how things were, were done. So the creative services part, glad to have, um, I guess, tapped into those childhood roots. But, um, but leading an organization that does what we do, yeah, a bit of a surprise for even me. And did you grow up in the Chicago area? No, I, I grew up in the Southeast for the most part. I lived in rural Georgia. In, in a valley, lots of mountains nearby. I had a stream that ran behind our house, endless fields. So it was a pretty interesting place to, to be raised. But um, a lot of childhood in Georgia, spent some time uh, in LA suburbs as a kid as well. 
and was born in Nashville. But Chicago has been my home for the last 16 years now. Yeah, and, and as a young kid in Georgia, did you were you a creative kid? I mean, were you into those types of pursuits, or did you have other interests? I loved to draw, even though I sucked at it. I loved being a musician, also not necessarily my greatest accomplishment, but uh, I learned how to play a variety of different instruments. I was in all the school bands. I was in a, a rock band as a teenager, and even went to college to study audio engineering. Just thinking, wow, I could work in the music industry. Maybe I could be a producer, and um, certainly picked up some of the the technical aspects of it. But just was blown away by by the talent that would go to uh, go to my classes and um, be incredible audio engineers as well as great musicians. I just realized, oh man, I just I don't know if I have what it takes to cut it. But it's also in school that I picked up not only the the technical side. Of, of the music industry uh, to a certain extent, but also the business side. So I had this sort of more of a, a, a free form degree program where you could pick up essentially any number of classes uh, that interest you and that would formulate your degree. So everything from, from artist management, uh, copyright law, um, music publishing, as well as um, a business minor as well. So the, the finance side mixed with audio engineering, mixed with uh, other forms of management is a pretty pretty unique kind of program of study. So I think that was also uh, fortuitous for my experience later on in life. Yeah, and I imagine you went to that program and in that uh, uh, school so you could go out into the world and work in the recording industry. Uh, <laughs> is, is that what happened? I mean, is that, you know, did you get out and you just like, you know, we're here now, so something happened along the way. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I did I did live in Nashville for a number of years and worked in the music industry. Never really climbed too many rungs of the ladder there. But I would say and I, I spent, gosh, about five years, worked for was a country musician named Alan Jackson, who was, I guess, kind of a big deal at the time. So I worked for his management company. I worked for a music venue development company that never quite developed the music venue. I uh, worked in worked in publishing, worked for an indie record label uh, for an artist named John Prine, who recently passed. And in all those times, I thought, wow, it's so cool to be close to the, the creative people in the industry. You get to see see how it's all done. But I think the downside was you got to see how things were done. And any sort of, I guess, business of creativity has the side where, at least in the music industry at the time, uh, and this was right before the dawn of the mp3 and how that really transformed uh, the whole industry but that's a different topic but just seeing how artists were, were treated as a as a commodity as a as a thing versus um, as a human and just how hard they, they were pushed that to me was a, a turning point where i realized anytime you have someone who is an artist who is creative those people should be better protected and that's something that i think really resonated with me in coming years as I became more of a producer of project management of multimedia projects that I understood just enough of what they needed to accomplish and what, what the process was for that and being able to, again, protect them to a certain extent or at least explain that to the outside world of uh, here's the process, here's what needs to be done and, and trying to shelter them or shield them from some of the, uh, some of the crap that they may normally do. So that actually discovered down the road that there's a, a career in that, and that is being a, a liaison or middleman or producer. So that's what I became. 
Yeah, and was that what happened right away, or how, what was that transition from kind of bridging that dream and that fallen dream? It's really interesting because I have a lot of stories like that too, where like the 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 vision doesn't meet the reality. You know, like you get there and you're like, oh, I mean, I had a, uh, I did the same thing. I went out to the movie business and I was like, oh, this is great and I can have a career here, but I'm not sure I want one. And um, you know, and we could talk about that at length, but it just didn't match my sort of fantasy vision of what that that experience was like so how did you make that then jump or leap into to marketing as a as a career yeah it, i guess it was a, a moment of a frustration to a certain degree as i mentioned the the ladder was was really tall in the music industry and most people never really make it uh, above a certain level so while i was hovering towards the bottom of the ladder some uh, friends of mine their company had been acquired out in Las Vegas of all places. And it was a Hollywood-based company called Sound Deluxe. And they had a, a themed entertainment, audiovisual, and creative services uh, arm of that company. So they were supporting uh, like the Hard Rock Hotel and uh, developing that music library. There were a lot of other theme places, uh, Universal Studios in Hollywood, where uh, different attractions that had audiovisual hardware and components, but also sound design and sometimes content to like vibrating theater seats to robotics. So it was, it was a pretty interesting mixture of, of these um, physical elements with, um, with media elements as well. And then the nuts and bolts that kind of stitched all together. So I, I think the, the transition out of the music industry was pretty swift, uh, even though Sound Deluxe had its roots in, in audio. I thought, well, I'm getting out of Nashville. I'm leaving the industry behind. And then jumping right into uh, this field, which then led to another gig with an exhibit company that also had a division that focused on developing these media-rich uh, physical environments. I was I was pretty hooked, and that's when I realized um, I can still use some of the education I've had over the years, both in school and in my uh, short-lived music industry career. But it, I mean, just the the combination of everything that I love on the on the technology side, as well as seeing seeing these people that I work with uh, create magic and doing it within a within a physical environment was was special so that's what really stuck with me and, and caused that transition to happen yeah and when we started the show and you kind of talked about Leviathan you gave us you know an answer that hey we do these big things and this and that and you've talked a little bit about multimedia but I don't think people really are going to understand like if we go to your website we see these amazing installations. I mean, I'm like, I got a couple scrolling right here in the background and they're like blowing my mind. And so, you know, I, I want to also set the like contrast between that work and we'll kind of get into that. But so that's what we're seeing today. What were some of those early big sort of multimedia projects back in the day that now you look at and you're like, well, you know, maybe it's not so fantastical now, but at the time it was groundbreaking. No, I have to admit some of the early stuff still really resonates. I mean, I'm, I'm biased, so naturally um, I'm going to pick favorites, but uh, I think some of the early work still resonates even today with with people outside of well, the organization. There was um, within, I think, probably the first seven or eight months of after Leviathan opened, which was in 2010, there was a, an electronic musician named Amon Tobin. And Amon Tobin's been around for a number of years. He was um, performing at a music festival, electronic music festival called Mutech. And I believe in Montreal. And uh, a friend of ours, uh, a VJ by the name of Velo Verkhouse, had done lots of uh, 
if you remember the genre EDM, he did lots of electronic musicians and DJs um, sets doing uh, concert visuals for them. But what, what Amon Tobin wanted to do was something a bit different. Uh, a lot of uh, DJ sets or electronic musicians would literally just be sitting in front of either a, a computer or, or turntables, and they'd have the, the cups of the earphones on their head, and there may be some lights blinking, and then they would shake their head back and forth, and the crowd would, crowd would go crazy. But his idea was, let's give them something more to react to. I, I want to have a, if you think in terms of like an IMAX movie, something very cinematic, had a narrative experience, uh, which would accompany his album, Isom, which uh, I think was somewhat of a concept album for him. So not only just having visuals, but having those um, narrative visuals projection mapped onto uh, a crazy stage set. And for those of you who don't know projection mapping at home, that's okay. Um, it's a technical term. If you can imagine wrapping a three-dimensional object in a projected image or in light and having it um, seem to be very form-fitted for that object. So this, this stage set was a bunch of white cubes, like they were stacked, uh, stacked on top of each other. And these crazy visuals were, were projection mapped onto that surface as his music played. And uh, turned out that you know, the crowd loved it and the work garnered a lot of press in Wired and Fast Company, New York Times, and a bunch of other publications. So that was really a watershed moment for us and kind of helped build our career. So I'll, I'll flag that one as a, as a favorite that um, I'd say from a financial perspective, uh, not our shiniest spot, but it's okay. It paid dividends over the years, just in being um, a, a calling card for us. And speaking of holding up and still resonating, it looks like it still might be on your reel on your site. If I see it cycling <laughs> through, is that right? Is that what I'm looking at? Yeah. Yeah. It's, Again, it's kind of a legacy project from from the early days, but you know, we it's been pretty remarkable. We've had people from uh, again ten years ago when that show uh, was going on tour. But whenever I have conversations with folks and they see that um, clients even seeing that on our reel, say, "Yeah, I went to that show a decade ago, and I'd never seen anything before like it. It just um, completely blew my mind, and I'll never forget it." So when you hear compliments like that, even though it's not it's not marketing or advertising in the traditional sense. There's not a brand logo associated with it or a, you know, an, a Grand Prix award that, that comes with that. I mean, that is probably one of the, the best compliments you can get is when people have their mind blown and that they remember it even 10 years later. That is incredible. And you mentioned the the early years of Leviathan. Let's let's go back there. Like, how? What was the uh, the genesis of the business? Like, why 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 did you start this firm? Wow. Um, yeah, definitely going in the way back machine. I had started another smaller called a like a web and motion production company. We did work for other advertising agencies and um, other smaller groups, building websites, did some for, for record labels and some for big agencies like DDB. We also had um, some motion designers or animators on our staff. So that had been going along from uh, the early days of 2002 up through about 2008, 2009. And that's when one of the previous big financial crises hit, hit the U.S. And we had to lay off everyone. The other partners I had, they were not interested in sticking around. So there was this company that we built over the years and was just kind of sitting dead in the water. I was the, the last man standing, literally. 
uh, in a lofty warehouse space in Chicago, thinking, what the hell am I going to do? We, we had, the work wasn't coming in. We had, had debt at that point. Uh, so I'll, I'll save you the sob story and just say over probably about six, eight months, uh, the work came back, had the company to myself and um, had cash in the bank. So then it became a matter of what, what do I do next and how can I do it differently? So I had met another gentleman by the name of Matt Daly. He was freelancing uh, with, with my organization and he just turned to be a brilliant fellow. He was not only uh, really talented in, in 3D, but he was also um, a crazy artist in other respects. He had graduated from the School of the Art Institute, designed and built robots for like a touring robotics troupe in Europe. And he um, had some of these other crazy techniques that he was trying out. So very much, we call him the nutty professor, just as a nickname, because he really was that that brilliant guy. He could do his day job as an animator, but he really had passion for doing these other more technically advanced things. Then met another guy who was a creative director who had been a painter and sculptor in his previous life. And at the time he was running another animation studio. So we also got together and started talking about, well, I have this company. It's kind of coming back to life. We all love building things for, for physical environments. We like doing things kind of going beyond what is what is expected within those spaces. So maybe we'll just take what's left of my old company and let's turn it into something new. And that's literally what, what Leviathan was. was my old Rolodex, I'll use air quotes for, for people who might still remember that term. Uh, my, my list of contacts, the, the money in the bank, and started over with, with those assets. And, and that was Leviathan. Yeah, and was that hard taking on partners? Was there any pause there? Were you was there any concern or was it pretty easy? Oh, getting married is never easy. It, it certainly came with its with its benefits too, though. Uh, having having led my own organization for a while, uh, having some other strong personalities come into the organization was, I think it was, it could be challenging, but it was also a very healthy thing to happen. To have a balance between the business side and just call it the pure artistic side. And then the technical side, we kept the organization honest for a number of years. We were able to um, to at least support ourselves. I just I had a someone in the finance industry tell me like, "Hey, a business is not is not to support a hobby," but in some ways it kind of was because we we got to build a beautiful work. Some of it was very commercial, but I think it was just a, a good balanced organization for a number of years. But um, I think as as we grew in size and as we just wanted to keep it going, I think that's where the diversion of opinions between partners can sometimes come into play. It, it's not necessarily a matter of uh, there was misalignment. No one was necessarily wrong or or right, but the the aspiration is to be a, a pure artist and do nothing uh, nothing commercial and still make a healthy living. That's not that's not always. Uh, a, a common happening. So, so some wanted to just have stability in their lives and others wanted to be artists. And I think that's where some of the complications came in, but being, I'd say as uh, quote unquote parents who got married and had a baby that is Leviathan, uh, certainly think we'd all be proud of the, uh, the Leviathan that, that exists today because of that parenting, if you will. Yeah. That's such an interesting topic of, 
that you just brought up in that I think a lot of creatives struggle with this, this tension between wanting to be an artist and wanting to make money. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that sometimes we feel guilty about it. We're like, oh, there's some like sin in being commercial or getting money, or we've sold our soul or we're compromising our, what we do. But at the end of the day, you know, we're a lot of times very fortunate that we can do this for a living and solve business problems and get paid. But like, how, how do you reconcile that? What was, what was the, the sort of the, the recipe at Leviathan for balancing that, that need to, to be an artist yet be commercial? Uh, I once had another agency owner tell me that, like, hey man, you're in the service industry. You are paid for a service. You are not paid to be an artist. So you kind of have to get over your self-righteousness of trying to be you know, always trying to create art. You know, you're you're in you're in marketing. You need to you need to just accept that. So that it was a, a moment where I had to pause and I wanted to push back and say, well, that's that's a bunch of crap. But the the more I thought about it, I think it it did resonate. So that being said, I mean, what makes Leviathan, or at least what made Leviathan great in the early days was really trying to push the boundaries of what, what is possible within the physical space. If you think about what do you see at a Disney or Universal theme park, it, it seems to be magical and it defies reality. And that's those are the exact types of projects that we work on outside of, say, a, a corporate headquarters or, um, or a museum. We love working in the, in the theme space as well. So. And trying to focus on if it's not, well, we try to make it beautiful as well, but you know, what would make this special? What could no one else do, or at least not do very easily that we could do uh, from a technology perspective? And then how can we make that technology invisible? So you feel like you are experiencing something that is uh, sprinkled with pixie dust, that it is magical, but there's no reason why we can't make it beautiful as well. So I think just always trying to recruit the right talent that understands what is what is cutting edge but feasible? Avoid the bleeding edge so that you don't you know, fall on your face from uh, trying technology that's not tried and true. And then also making sure you have people who are who value design above a lot of other things. And so therefore, you you don't compromise. You you make it make it bespoke and unique in its execution, and you make it as beautiful as you can and as beautiful as. Uh, uh, a client's branding will allow. And you can't nail it every time. But as long as you strive for that and you do have some um, some end results that meet that criteria, then I consider that a win for sure. A common question I get all the time is, Mark, can you help me with our brand? Yes, we help companies solve branding problems. And the first step would be to schedule a no-obligation brand clarity call. We'll link to that in the show notes or head over to wildstory.com and send us an email. We'll get you booked right away. So whether you're just getting started with a new business or whether you've done some work and need a refresh or whether you're a brand that's high-performing and wants to stay there, we can help. After you book your brand clarity call, you'll learn about our brand audit and strategy process. We'll identify if you need a new logo or just a refresh. We'll determine if your business has a branding problem and you'll see examples of our work and get relevant case studies. We'll also see if branding is holding your business back and can help you get to the next level. 
So what are you waiting for? Build the brand you've always dreamed of. Again, we'll link to that in the show notes or head over to wildstory.com and send us an email. Now back to the show. As I was hearing you speak, it actually took me back to my very first job, uh, which was I was working for Disney's Imagineering in California. Oh, you were, you were an Imagineer? I, I Well, I don't think, I don't know if I was technically an, I, I worked there. I was on the payroll. I don't think I was an Imagineer though. I was uh, uh, like a runner, right? And uh, for different oh, you film totally projects. Were. Yeah, for different That's film awesome. projects. But I would report to this total skunk works uh, kind of, uh, warehouse in Van Nuys that was very nondescript and you'd walk in through a different security and, you know, and then, uh, there'd be like, looked like the land of misfit toys with robots and welding. And then I'd go through all that. And then I'd actually walk into a private theater that had three panels, 70 millimeter, and we'd be screening, screening movies for Epcot and stuff like that. But as we were, as we were talking, I was like, wow, do they have their own version? Like, cause I'm looking also at your website. Like, like, where are these things fabricated? And do you have like your own sort of secret imagineering Leviathan lab, if you will, where these, where these, uh, projects are, are assembled? What's that like? <laughs> um, yeah, I wish we had a, a gigantic fabrication facility where you could, uh, 3D print something the, the size of, um, uh, of a human being or to have tons of robots at our, at our disposal. For the most part, we, we do have a, a, an in- engineering space where the team can work on prototyping things. We have other partners that we'll work with where they can fabricate other physical structures. But as far as like hooking computers up to that and projecting onto the wall and setting up different monitor arrays or testing out um, augmented virtual reality, any sort of, Installation that we might work on, we always try to set up a working prototype for that in our space, and it's it's absolutely necessary. I mean, imagine designing a product and never really testing it, and then just uh, like sending it out to the market and saying, "Well, here it is." You know, we really have to test out those kinds of I guess, prototypes long before we get to the point of of trying to roll it out or even um, showing it to the client. So it's been it's always intriguing to see what. Uh, what works and what doesn't. Um, when you just when you think you have the right plan, that plan is spoiled by reality, and then you have to pivot. But a lot of I think important learnings come out of those those mistakes. Same can be said about life as well as business. But uh, prototyping, I think, is really important for us to, to test test things out. We learn new tricks, new processes from that. And um, again, I, I love. I love seeing, much like those who work in, in film like you have, looking behind the scenes and seeing how it's all made is, is intriguing in and of itself. So I love that yeah. process. Yeah, absolutely. And you're talking about like prototyping and getting it right. I mean, are there any projects that like you just wish you could have had a do-over on or wish you never even took on? Like, do you have any that just didn't, didn't quite work? Oh, man. I certainly, I'd hate to bring up the, the names of the, of the innocent or, or the client names either. But yeah, I mean, we have absolutely had some of those projects where if anything, it's probably usually um, just a shortage of time. And um, when you, we don't have enough time to get something right, even if it, it's less about being a, a perfectionist and trying to do it over again, and maybe doing it even better the second or third time. Uh, sometimes you just don't have the luxury of, of finishing the work at all. So it's, you feel like you're stringing it together with, with duct tape um, at the very end. So I would say sometimes those 
those uh, projects happen. And all you can really do is, is stick with it and work with clients and have them be as understanding as I possibly can. And you, as much as you want to go back to them and say, hey, we told you so, we told you we needed more time and still didn't happen. All you can do is let them know that, hey, we want to avoid what happened last time, right? So we need the ample time to to not only prototype this, but to, to install it and finish it out. So yeah, I, I can't really say a specific project, but I would just say time can be the enemy of, uh, of that kind of work and um, you need time to perfect it. Yeah. So what do you want clients to know about this work? Like, like how, 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 do, how do we get it right? Great question. Uh, I could probably come up with a pretty long list, but I'll just think of a, a few key points I think that might be, might be important for, for future clients to know. I think for one, sometimes the, the bells and whistles are not what makes these experiences as good as we all want them. Technology is absolutely an important part. But um, if you are in a, a corporate headquarters and you have, a, say, a, a gorgeous giant display, floor to ceiling goes three stories high. Uh, I've seen those where uh, clients have CNN running on those screens versus having something that could be a valuable branded moment. So they invested all that money into probably millions of dollars in these gigantic video displays, and they don't think about what, what the content is that goes on those. So that is, that's kind of marketing 101, right? You need to have the, the right message or the right story. So um, I'd say think less about the technology and more about those, those immersive branded moments. Uh, you, you have to get that right. And you have to balance out the investment in, in the content and the story and in the design as, as much as you are on the technology side. If not, then you have a, a big expensive TV in your living room that you don't even have Netflix to play on it. You have a, a big screen that plays a screensaver. And that's, that's not doing anyone any great service. I'd say uh, something else that's important about, about these kinds of moments is that if you, if you want to have a, an environment that is cutting edge from a technology standpoint, you, you have to understand that that, that comes with uh, an investment of time and you, you have to experiment and some things um, you aren't always going to get right. And it kind of comes back to the, the time aspect. You need time to, to prototype and test. And I think that's what groups like, like a Disney or Universal get right is they, they spend a lot of time developing uh, new technology, new IP before they release it out into the world. So, so that's not always possible in the, in the called the brand environments. So, um, so I'd say maybe to come first, so first yeah, full circle on that point, it is clients sometimes want to push the envelope further than, than should be possible. And you need to kind of work with um solid state technologies and, and techniques that um, that we know will work over the test of time and um, and can't always push the envelope as far as we'd like. There we go. Um, narrative first and foremost and, and investing in content uh, over technology and then just um, you know, kind of being realistic with expectations and what you can do within a, a branded environment. Yeah, totally. And so when you think about all that, and you're talking about solid state technologies and tried and true, let's flip it and kind of go the other way. Like, what are you most excited about in terms of technologies that are coming up in, in ways that can be applicable to how you work with your clients? Yeah, I'd say a, a lot of what we've been doing lately is, um, I'll try to use a simple term, real-time content. 
this could be anything from say data visualization to uh, artificial intelligence or, or computer vision. It's it's kind of taking taking some of these technologies and putting it on steroids and making the content um, not just playing back a video, but having uh, having real time aspects to it, having data that's refreshed uh, at the very in the very second that you're looking at a screen. Other than technologies like uh, game engines, so Unity or Unreal are the same kind of uh, technologies used to build console video games. And that kind of engine can also be very powerful with creating beautiful graphics um, and affecting it real time, either through um, call it, um, sensing physical gestures or using other external controllers. So I think the evolution of all that uh, real-time content has been pretty remarkable and it's a cornerstone of what we do. And when you have that in the branded environment, I mean, you can have different types of um, industrial simulations or um, or different types of data visualizations to help communicate to, to your organization or to your clients just uh, how dynamically something can change. And it does it in a way that's compelling and beautiful. And that's what, honestly, that's what creating all the, these experiences is about. Much like in a in a theme park as a kid, those kind of magical moments resonate with you for a long time. And that's what, that's the kind of tools that we build for our clients is um, let's, let's create an experience for them that they're not soon going to forget. And for, for those clients, it leads to, to either engage employees or um, transactions with clients. So those real-time technologies, I think, are, um, are very exciting for us. And it adds levels of per, uh, personalization as well. So that if, um, if you uh, enter into a space, uh, this is an overused analogy of Minority Report, if you recall that film. But the, the moment where Tom Cruise is running around, he has uh, someone else's identity, but everywhere he runs within the retail space, these uh, ads pop up um, that that uh, speak his name and uh, supposedly cater to what his interests are. So while that's a, a bit, uh, can't even say it's a bit far-fetched anymore, but while that would be a bit intrusive in real life, I think when applied in the right way, um, if you share that kind of information, uh, much like you would with a, with a website or an app, if you share it in the right way uh, within a physical environment, the real-time personalized experiences that can come with that, I think are um, it can almost be worth the worth sharing information and to get that kind of payoff for that experience. Yeah. And so I think about that and I think about, it's like using data for good versus data for bad. Right. And it's like, yeah. how do we do that? Cause, cause I want to be a part of that world where I get the personalized, customized experience that you just described. That sounds amazing. Right. That sounds like, but like, then there's always this like, other shoe that'll drop of, of data being used against us. Is there a way to, to live in that cooler world without the, the dark side? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. I would say, I, I know I keep throwing out these uh, Disney theme park examples, uh, but I'd say it's a, it's a good model to think about. What, what Disney had created a few years back is something called the Magic Band. And I think they've since pivoted more to using mobile devices if people don't want to use the magic band, but it's more or less a RFID wristband that is uh, that identifies you as a person. And when you register for the magic band, you also attach a credit card or a bank card to that so that when you're going through the park, 
yes, you can use the park to get in. To get in, it kind of recognizes you and says, okay, yeah, they've paid their their, um, their admission fee. But when they're going to a restaurant and they want to to order or pick up their food, they know, okay, well, this is uh, this is Chad. He picked up the, the hot dog he ordered from his mobile device. But then there's also moments where if you're going through a ride and um, I think uh, we worked on this for, for the Haunted Mansion, which is an attraction. As you're riding through, um, it's called the Doom Buggy, there's an identifier where it knows if you're sitting in a certain seat uh, within the, the buggy and the ghost that's projected onto a surface in front of you holds up a sign that says Chicago or bust, it knows that I'm from Chicago. And it um, pulled that information and, and displayed it, which made it a, a pretty remarkable moment for me. Like, hey, how did they, how'd they know that? How'd they know I was from Chicago? So that's a, a like one specific case, I suppose, of that happening. But are they using that information for marketing purposes? Very likely. But uh, again, I think it kind of comes back to the, the debate of a customer paid for this experience. Did it make it a better experience for them? Is it, is it more remarkable? Is it more amazing or magical? I think if the answer is yes, then, then the customers are okay with that. But, but that said, I think whenever, whenever the question of ethics comes into play is uh, transparency is key. So if you don't know what you're signing up for when you're sharing that kind of information, then um, yeah, that's when the bad things start happening. And uh, you don't always want to read through a 45-page uh, agreement to see if, um, like, am I really giving up information that I shouldn't? Is this an invasion of my privacy or not? But that's our perspective. If it's, uh, if it's worth the trade-off to the customer, then I suppose it's okay? Question mark? Yeah, and uh, I haven't been to Disney in so long, it made me want to go back. So that sounds awesome. I mean, you sold it. Like, it sounds great. I want the personalized experience. Uh, I want my magic band to work. So that sounds that sounds great. And a few years ago, you actually went through, was it an acquisition or a merger with, with the Envoy group? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, there's a group called Envoy that's based in Southern California, specifically Orange County. And we had worked together with them uh if you've ever seen a, a Vizio television, it seems like there's one in almost every household. But uh, when Vizio first came onto the scene as an electronics manufacturer, Envoy uh, was, I believe, their first digital agency. And at the time, they were doing uh, a ton of work for them, and they'd collaborated with us on doing some some um, 3D animation on their products. So. Uh, what started as a, a successful collaboration some years ago and a continued relationship, it just evolved into um, conversations around, uh, hey, Envoy said, we're, we're trying to build something bigger and we, we're looking for the, the right family members. So with them being a, called a uh, traditional digital agency where they were focused more on creating websites and apps and digital products for their clients. And we were doing more of the uh, called the digital spaces or environments. It just seemed like a, a great match. So they, um, when they approached us, gosh, it's been four years ago now. It's yeah, I, I'm I'm really glad it happened, especially in light of pandemic. Having a a, a larger family with uh, with greater resources has certainly been very very important for our organization to to stay strong and and even thrive in those times. So it's been a yeah, I'd say much to my uh, comment earlier, sometimes when it comes to marriage, it's, it's not always easy, but I think that we, we are like-minded individuals and we're making something bigger and better. So it's been great. 
was it difficult at that time? I mean, I know, I know now looking back, you're like, oh, this is great. And we got through the pandemic and we're part of this happy family. But at the time, was it hard to think about giving up your autonomy and doing that and becoming a part of a different group? Very fair question. I would say there were mixed emotions and that there, there now was a, a boss of sorts. Whenever you are, uh, whenever someone buys you for what you have, I think their their hope is to uh, to make more money off of that, and and that's the fair assumption. That's what when you run a business, you want to be profitable. And as I described um, in our earlier years, we were probably more focused on making great work and at least supporting ourselves, and not really going beyond that. So I, I think it was an important lesson to learn of um, you. You can make great work, but you also have to, if you want to grow, if you want to have more stability, you need to need to earn money for your shareholders. So um, I think that that was, while it was um, difficult to shift the mindset of being more um, business-like versus being more, I suppose, creative, but I, the other part of my brain completely got it. And uh, I think that was also the other part of my brain is what wanted to learn more about the side of uh, how do larger businesses operate? What what are the better financial models to pursue? And how can we be more efficient at doing things? We can't always just um, be the experimenters at some point in time. Like, hey, we have to move on to the next project. We can't always just uh, fund experimentation ourselves. Well, we try to do that when we can. Um, I think um, learning on the job shouldn't necessarily be something that, um, that you have to pay for. You can build that into projects. So, so there were definitely some adjustments, but again, I feel like it's built a, it's helped us to build a, a better operation all the way around. And we serve a wider range of clients now, and they're still really good about giving us enough autonomy. Uh, if anything, they're, they're in Southern California, we're in Chicago. So even though everything is virtual at the moment, it's still a good, a good balance of you know, letting us do what we do best and being a support system and a, and uh, I guess a a boss when whenever needed. Sometimes a little accountability doesn't hurt, right? Like I talked about that. I was just talking about that this morning with someone. I was like, well, I like not being accountable because I have my own thing, but like I fully can recognize that some accountability would also go a long way. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, we all push ourselves, right? If we're business uh, owners or operators, we push ourselves, but sometimes you need the outside influence. And that's, that's a bit of, uh, yeah, I think we're on the same page for that. That's no, really cool. So as you look to the future, what are you, what are you most excited about these days? What, what are you looking forward to? I don't think uh, the Envoy had acquired uh, Leviathan as well as another company called Bulldog Drummond. And I don't think they're going to stop there. I think they're certainly looking to uh, find other like-minded organizations that, that fit the mold. So having a bigger family, having greater capabilities, I think it'll allow our, our team the ability to cross pollinate that much more. I mean, the, our different offices have definitely started to team up more, and we're learning from those experiences and growing from them. Um, it not only does it give our clients, I guess, more um, more offerings and more support, but uh, it just gives our other other employees opportunities to um, to try new things and work in different offices. So that that kind of growth, I think, is what's really exciting for us. But yeah, I'm also excited for for the world to start opening up again because 
everything that we do is pretty much centered around physical environments and physical environments have been taboo for the last 15, 18 months almost. So having, uh, having theme parks, museums reopen, uh, corporate headquarters that are reopening and, and being able to put experiences into those spaces because we've remained very busy during, uh, even during the lockdown, but um, as the world opens up and um, those experiences that we've been building have uh, have also opened with them. Um, I just think that that people are going to be so excited about getting back into spaces and experiencing things that it's, it's going to be a very busy uh, next few years for us. Yeah, yeah. I, for one, am very excited about uh, reemerging into the world and experiencing life once again. So, Chad, as as we come to a close here, I'd, I'd like you to think back to your time growing up in Georgia, young boy, and playing along the stream and you know if he was able to see you now what do you think he'd say um wow now would i just see today or would i see the whole movie of like the last um, 35 years or so that's up to you what are you going to share with him oh you know i think i'd have to say i want to take a moment to at least say you know what you you did all right kid but I think the one of the important ones, uh, important things that I always try to remind myself of is to is to not be so hard on ourselves. Um, to say that good enough is truly good enough. It's not just eh, it's adequate. But like no, I did, I did well. It's good, and we don't always have to um, keep uh, flogging ourselves to say could have done better, should have done better. Because um, you you try, you fail, and you learn from it. And, um, so I, I guess I would just say that, uh, Hey man, you've, you've done pretty well for yourself and, and be proud of it, but now get back out there and, and, uh, do more, do better. So, um, yeah, I would just tell myself that it's going to be okay and hang in there. Don't give up and just know that uh, you tried your best. Probably not the strongest answer I could have given, but that's, that's honestly what goes through my mind a lot of times is some. Maybe you could have done more, could have done better, but you did pretty well. So be good with that. And that is Chad Hudson, CEO and co-founder of Leviathan. I've always wondered who made all those amazing digital experiences. I would interact with the performances, theme parks, and office buildings. And now I know it's most likely Leviathan. I can't stop thinking about what Chad said, that sometimes good enough really is good enough. Throughout my career, I haven't always agreed with that sentiment, but coincidentally, this summer, my personal theme is be content, not complacent, but be content with the good things. Lean in, remember why we're here, to enjoy this experience. I also really resonated with Chad's notion that we should invest in content over technology. After all these years and all the technological advancements we've seen from film to radio to television to the internet, one thing has remained constant. Great and compelling storytelling wins above all else. A big thank you to Chad Hudson and the team at Leviathan. We will link to all things Chad and Leviathan in the show notes. And if you know of a guest who should appear on our show, please drop me a line at podcast at wildstory.com. Our best guests, like Chad, come from referrals from past guests and our listeners. 
Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. 